1: Hey, welcome to the show. Hang on, I'm going to adjust my volume just a little bit here. Okay. Welcome, my fellow wrong thinker. I'm so glad you could join me today. There is uh, there's much to discuss in this hour of the show. And I'm going to pick up with a little unfinished business. And I, I hope this doesn't become, I hope this doesn't sound so so predictable. Oh, great, you're going to bag on the media again. But I came across two really great Columns. One from Larry Elder, another from Brian Kaplan, talking about why media credibility is on the wane. I want to start with Larry Elder's uh, column. This was from intellectualtakeout.org. And, you know, you could, you may say this, oh, this just sounds like so much spin trying to save face. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of really ugly stuff going on right now on Twitter and so forth. You know, suck it up, MAGA heads. You know, you guys lost and blah, blah, blah. Okay, I get that. Some people, that's, you know, they really believe that that's, you know, where satisfaction is going to be found. I've got to I've got to find some way to find uh, dominance or to assert that I have dominance over other people. If it's a political popularity contest, well, that's, you know, where they attach their meaning. Well, more power to them. I'm sorry, I, I choose not to live my life in that small of a mental prison. But, hey, you know, you do what works for you. Larry Elder's piece is titled Trump won his other campaign to destroy media credibility. And I, I share this with you, not because, uh, well, not, not because I have so much of an ax to grind, but just, this is one of the things that really frustrates me. And as someone who has worked in media over the last 35 years, I have a real problem with how, how blatantly subjective, and and biased. So much of the media has become, particularly the Heritage media. It's it just it disturbs me because I think it's it's dishonest, it's deceptive, and and yet to to talk to them, to talk to members of the media, what what I don't see what we're just we're just doing our job. But when that job includes well, we have to manipulate people for because we know what's best for them. That's not honest. Listen to how Larry Elder describes it. He says, convinced that Donald Trump lost his bid for re-election, the media suddenly became less hysterical. Just like that, the media, at least to some degree, rediscovered concepts such as fairness and perspective, AWOL, the last four years. Two weeks after the election, New York Times Pulitzer Prize winning columnist Nicholas Kristof haltingly, grudgingly and reluctantly admitted that, yes, Trump was right banning in-person school education to fight COVID-19 was and is bad policy. Now, Christoph wrote, Some things are true, even though President Trump says them. Trump has been demanding for months that schools reopen, and on that he seems to have been largely right. Schools, especially elementary schools, do not appear to have been major sources of coronavirus transmission, and remote learning is proving to be a catastrophe for many low-income children. Now, Kristoff, of course, could not acknowledge Trump's correct judgment without the some things are true, even though Trump says them snark. But Larry Elder says, remember, this is The New York Times, a paper that has not endorsed a Republican for president since 1956. Little steps. He says Kristoff even took a Trump like swipe at Democrat run cities and whether inadvertently or not, he made the case for K through 12 vouchers for inner city kids. So Democrats helped preside over school closures that have devastated millions of families and damaged children's futures. Cities such as Boston, Philadelphia, Baltimore and Washington, D.C. have closed schools while allowing restaurants to operate. School closures magnify these inequities. As many private schools remain open and affluent parents are better able to help kids adjust to remote learning. At the same time, low income children fall even further behind. Now, Larry Elder says the New York Times, again, after the media awarded the election to former Vice President Joe Biden, even questioned the science behind a ban on outdoor dining, like most counties in California recently enacted in small gatherings, spread the virus. But are they causing the surge? The Times wrote, quote, but are dinners and backyard barbecues really the engine driving the current surge of infections? The available data do not support that contention, scientists say. Still, the idea has been repeated so often it has become conventional wisdom, leading to significant restrictions in many states. But many epidemiologists are far less certain, saying there's little evidence to suggest that household gatherings were the source of the majority of infections since the summer. Indeed, it has become much harder to pinpoint any source of any outbreak now that the virus is so widespread and Americans exposed may be exposed rather in so many ways. The New York Times article goes on to say a constant drumbeat about the dangers of social gatherings may help to convey the seriousness of the current surge. That's according to Harvard University infectious disease epidemiologist, uh, Julius Mar- Julia Marcus. But the article says, on the other hand, in some states, the misperception has led to draconian policies that don't square with science, end quote. Now, Larry Elder says, goodness, if Pulitzer gave a prize for fair and balanced coronavirus stories in the post-Trump era, the New York Times might actually deserve this one. Former Washington Post reporter Carl Bernstein shared the mood of much of the Trump-hating left when he accused Trump of homicidal negligence in his handling of the coronavirus. But Dr. Anthony Fauci post-election also sounds Trumpian. On the policy of further lockdowns, Fauci recently said there is no appetite for locking down in the American public, but I believe we can do it without a lockdown. I really do. You could get businesses going. You could still have economic forward thinking while you're doing that. You don't necessarily have to shut everything down. Hopefully we won't have to do that. Larry Elder says no appetite for another lockdown. What happened to follow the science? This is yet another tacit admission that, as Trump insisted, we must consider the unintended consequences of shutting down the economy, including the increased rates of suicide, depression, homicide, drug abuse, alcoholism, and domestic violence. And Larry Elder finally says, Did Trump serial, uh, did serial Trump CNN critic Jake Tapper praise, literally praise and credit Trump for the speed with which drug manufacturers have apparently developed vaccines for COVID-19? Yes, he did. Tapper said, We should take a moment, as we always have when discussing vaccine and Operation Warp Speed, and that this is, you know, putting aside all the failures of the Trump administration when it comes to the coronavirus, and there are lots. This is an unmitigated success, and we should acknowledge that. Wow, don't break your arm patting yourself on the back there, Jake. Larry Elder says, For four years, major media, along with their Democratic comrades, banded together to bring down Trump. They appear to have succeeded. But as to Trump's campaign to expose the media's blatant, often vicious anti-Republican bias so that much of America will never again trust it, Trump won huge. Now, I tend to agree with him. And again, this is maybe this is just my personal bias showing through here. I wanted to share some excerpts from a piece by um, Brian Kaplan, who has a very thoughtful take on why his trust for the media Has come to an end. He says, I ignore the news in part because I deem it unreliable. That's right, he says, I don't trust the media. But what exactly do I mean by this seemingly conspiratorial statement? All things considered, when I hear the media report on direct observations, I believe them. If they say rioting is happening in DC, I'm highly confident that rioting is happening in DC. If they quote a politician, I'm highly confident confident that the politician said the quote. If they say a person was specific was convicted rather of a specific crime, I believe that person was indeed convicted. But he says my trust largely ends there. Cause when the media makes claims about any of the following, I habitually roll my eyes. Number one, causation. He says, I distrust media claims about causation, about claims like X caused event Y, as well as event Y caused Z. If the media says a politician won an election, I believe them. When they try to tell me why the politician won, however, I scoff. If they try to tell me what will happen as a result of the politician's victory, I scoff again. Why? Because causation is notoriously difficult to untangle. And few journalists have the slightest training in causal inference. They are, however, masters of hyperbole. When it comes to meaning, he rolls his eyes. He says, I distrust media claims about what events mean, like X shows Y or X is part of a broader trend Z. Why? Well, this is because putting any particular event in context requires long term statistical reasoning. And few journalists have more than mediocre training in statistics. So if journalists claim that a notorious crime illustrates a general pattern about crime, Brian Kaplan says, I skeptically shrug. There are a couple more points here. I'm going to share them with you just the other side of the break here. But I think this is a really great way to uh, to examine your own reasons for why you trust or distrust what the media is telling you. One of my favorite tactics is when I see a story being reported a certain way, I like to ask, why is it being reported this way? Sometimes I ask, who is favored by the way this is being reported? And it's not that I'm looking for conspiracies. I'm just trying to make sure somebody's not yanking my chain. You should give it a try.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The
1: Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. By the way, lines are open, 801-331-8113, if you would like to join the conversation. Sharing with you, a uh, this is a column from Brian Kaplan, landed in my email inbox last night, thanks to everythingvoluntary.com. A great uh, site that you should subscribe to. If you want some great reading material, they'll they'll send out the emails. I think it's just about every day, at least five, six days a week. And this is one about the sense in which he doesn't trust the media. And I think this is a pretty reasonable approach because I I understand it's easy to get into If the media says the sun is shining, I'd have to go take a look. I'm not quite that cantankerous, but there's times where I think, I don't know, they're they're pretty... uh, They're pretty polarizing or they're they're pretty bent on their own little narrative. They're trying to to spin and, and push out there. So Brian Kaplan says, if it's something with direct observation, something that can be easily verified, this person was convicted of a crime. This is what happened. This event happened. It's when they start talking about the why or the how or this is what's going to happen. That's when they start to get into trouble. That's when the narrative, the story starts to become more important than the facts. And you can tell when, when it's delving off into uh, you know narrative territory when you start to see labels appear. Here's another area where he rolls his eyes and says, OK, I don't take him credible or take them seriously or give them credibility when uh, there's uh, the matter of importance. He says, whenever the media cover a story, there is a subtext and the subtext is this is important. And that goes when the media ignores a story. This is not important. By the way, a perfect example of this is uh, the president's uh, videotaped speech that he gave uh, Wednesday night. 46 minutes long. It's... uh, I watched it myself. Part of me wishes I hadn't watched it because it, uh, it made plain some very unpleasant truths that I would really rather not have to acknowledge. But... I strongly recommend, you know, if you just say, well, if the orange man said it, I don't even want to know what it is. You're you're doing the equivalent of sticking your fingers in your ears and chanting while you sit in a cave somewhere. You know, the worst thing that could happen is you might learn something and go, oh, okay." well, here's why I disagree with that. But but at least you'd be giving it a fair shake. Curiously, the media is not going to give you any opportunity because they are absolutely pretending that speech never happened. What speech That Nothing happened. Sending the subtext, this is not important. You'd have to watch it yourself to to understand why um, I think most people who watched that speech came away equal parts inspired as well as shaken up. It's very clear that we are on a collision course with reality. And the president's uh, 46 minute long speech in which he outlines, here's how voter fraud is being initiated, not just to keep him from enjoying another term in office. It really wasn't about him. It's about how our country, how our system of governance is being undermined. And you may say, well, he needs to prove that in court. I think he's asking for that opportunity to prove it in court. But he's also asking people, don't turn your backs on this and pretend it isn't happening. And he shows where there's clearly enough smoke to justify poking around to see if maybe there's a fire. But again, the media says, well, we're going to totally ignore it. I'm talking utter blackout by most of the mass media. And, and uh, look, I'm not trying to plant any conspiracy theories here, but why would they not want to touch that? Is there a reason it doesn't fit their particular agenda? Is there a reason that they feel like, well, you know, I mean, this, this may be one of the more important presidential speeches given within our lifetimes. Even if it was just to point out, hey, this guy is really unhinged and really desperate for another, you know, run at, uh, you know, another four years in office. You think the media might want to acknowledge it, but they won't. And to me, that speaks louder than anything. They're pretending that that never happened. I think in their minds, they've already sent it down the memory hole. Brian Kaplan says what he wonders. He says, even if I knew nothing about the world, I would have to wonder what qualifies these people, meaning the media. To adjudicate events. Importance, in other words, to determine what's important enough to report and what isn't. But he says, since I do know a great deal about the world, I'm convinced that the media's sense of importance is radically defective. These are the kind of people who would rather cover an insensitive tweet than weaker concentration camps in China. They would rather report a fatality free nuclear accident than vastly greater health damage of coal. They'd rather investigate the latest terrorist attack than discuss the global murder rate. And these aren't isolated shortcomings. He says the main function of the media is to distort viewers' priorities. Wouldn't disagree with him on that. By the way, the more people I talk to who have pulled the plug and stopped consuming mass media. All have reported that uh, the, the world starts looking normal in a relatively short amount of time. Now, this doesn't mean that they're the ones sticking their fingers in their ears and covering their eyes and, you know, chanting inside a cave so they don't have to acknowledge reality. They've just stopped accessing stuff that doesn't bring value into their lives. That's a conscious decision. And just about every person I've talked to who has done this has said, this has actually been an improvement. If I want to know something, I'll go delve into it and study and and see what I can learn for myself. What I won't do is wait for some blow-dried spinmeister to tell me what it all means. That's the path of least resistance, but that's also how you find yourself misinformed or under-informed, as the case may be. Next, on the subject of politics, Brian Kaplan says, Nope, even on utterly apolitical issues, I consider the media deeply unreliable on causation, meaning, and importance. Once causation, meaning, and importance become political, however, he says, I deem it absurdly, insultingly unreliable. Why? Well, most obviously because the media's overwhelming left-wing bias. He says you can tell simply by reading the headlines. Diction alone is a dead giveaway. Less obviously because of the media's unthinking nationalism. Despite their cosmopolitan pretensions, even very left-wing journalists are nationalists at heart. That's why a minor terrorist attack against fellow citizens gets a hundred times as much attention as mass murder of foreigners. That's why token cuts in domestic welfare programs outrage the media a hundred times as much as massive cuts in the administration, in the admission rather, of refugees. When critics attack the media as globalists, it's a case of 99% nationalists lashing out at 90% nationalists. Now, Brian Kaplan says, personally, I should add, journalists always almost always treat me very well. He says when they interview me, they're not just consistently fair and respectable, but he says they accurately report my positions. So what gives? Much of the reason must be self-selection. He says the journalists who interview him tend to be favorably disposed. A secondary reason, though, is that journalistic vices are often a response to consumer demand on some level. Most journalists know that plane crashes are grossly overcovered, but alas, if it bleeds, it leads. In a one-on-one conversation, though, the media is more thoughtful and open-minded than their output suggests. Another possibility, he says admittedly, is that when you're interviewing someone as averse to social desirability bias as myself, you can get a good story without bending the truth. I'm not going to counsel you on which media you can trust and which ones you can't. It would be really presumptuous, and, and I'd probably be wrong because I don't know what your priorities are in life, but I can say with absolute confidence the best investment you can make in yourself is not to subscribe to every media source out there, but to invest in your own ability to think and to, to subject yourself to books that are over your head. Test yourself, exert yourself mentally. I think the great books of Western civilization are a great place to start, but the idea is to become propaganda-proof. And it's something that anybody can do. It's not a matter of having all the answers like you're going to go win on Jeopardy. It's about knowing how to ask the right kinds of questions to where you get a more complete picture of what's going on.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
1: All right. Welcome back to the show. And again, if you'd like to join in the conversation, 801-331-8113. Hey, something else you can do. This is particularly handy for those of you who are not listening to the actual live broadcast of this hour of the program, but are catching it on podcast. If you go to my show notes at the brianhide show com that is where you will be able to find uh, a nice little comment feature right at the end of each day 's show notes and I love it. There are people who are using this more and more. It is a great way to give me feedback ask questions, drop big pregnant hints on me, Brian, you know, you need to uh, sit closer to the microphone or whatever the case may be. But uh, I I appreciate every bit of feedback that I get. Um, Right now, it's manageable enough that uh, I'm able to respond. Most people who who do write to me, I'm able to respond to them. Um, I'm looking forward to a day when there's so many that I actually have to hire an assistant to send a response for me. That's when you know you've made it. When you when you essentially have to try to clone yourself or a part of yourself in order to fulfill all of your obligations, I'm not there yet, so no worries. I will respond. <laughs> okay, moving forward, came across this uh, this post on Twitter. I'm going to share a link to this. I want you to check it out if you're on Twitter. There was a term that I learned today, and some will, will roll their eyes because it seems a little derisive, but it's Fauciism. Yes, as in Doctor Fauciism. And it's economic and political historian Phil Magnus who brought this to my attention. But I love how he did this because he talks about something that we recognize most most of us who are on the side of freedom right now recognize Dr. Anthony Fauci has uh, has personified what a politicized public health bureaucracy can become. He is the perfect face. And by the way, there's a great clip. Um, you'll, you'll have to go to LouRockwell.com. It's either on the Lou Rockwell blog or his political theater part of his website where there's a video clip of Dr. Fauci faithfully putting his mask on as the cameras come on. But as soon as the mask, as soon as the cameras are off, the mask comes off. But somebody got a shot of him with a uh, with that that smirk like, see, <laughs> these rubes are so easy to fool. But this, this Fauciism, this idea that uh, that public health bureaucracy would actually become its, its own special interest group that would seek its own perpetuation, that would seek to expand its powers. I mean, come on, tell me you haven't noticed this happening all of 2020, ever since at least, you know, COVID became, you know, a reality. Would you believe that a philosopher by the name of Herbert Spencer predicted and anticipated... I shouldn't say predicted. He anticipated the rise of Fauciism 170 years ago. And there's a couple of quotes here that were shared by Phil Magnus on Twitter that illustrate this. So this is uh, social Darwinist philosopher Herbert Spencer. He says, moreover, this doctrine that it is the duty of the state to protect the health of its subjects cannot be established for the same reason that its kindred doctrines cannot, namely, Cannot, rather. Namely, the impossibility of saying how far the alleged duty shall be carried out. You understand what he's saying there? Well, it's here to protect the health of the subjects. Well, but how far can that go? Herbert Spencer said health depends upon the fulfillment of numerous conditions, can be protected only by ensuring that fulfillment. If, therefore, it is the duty of the state to protect the health of its subjects, it is its duty to see that all the conditions of health are fulfilled by them. Now, shall this duty be consistently discharged? He asks, if so, the legislature must enact a National Dietary Prescribe so many meals a day for each individual. Fix the quantities and qualities of food, both for men and women. State the proportion of fluids, when to be taken and of what kind. Specify the amount of exercise and define its character. Describe the clothing to be employed. Determine the hours of sleep, allowing for the difference of age and sex, and so on with all the other particulars necessary to complete a perfect synopsis for the daily guidance of the nation and to enforce these regulations it must employ a a sufficiency of duly qualified officials empowered to direct everyone's domestic arrangements if on the other hand a universal supervision of private conduct is not meant well then there comes the question where between this and no supervision at all lies the boundary up to which supervision is a duty. Huh. To which question no answer can be given. And here's another little excerpt that Phil Magnus shared where he said he sees uh, Herbert Spencer C see, sees the rise of public health bureaucracy and government anticipating public choice dimensions of how it would become an interest group for its own self-perpetuation and the expansion of its own powers. Quote, more or less distinctly expressed in these passages, there is an unmistakable wish to establish an organized, tax-supported class charged with the health of men's bodies, as the clergy are charged with the health of their souls. And whoever has watched how institutions grow, how by little and little, a very innocent-looking infancy unfolds into a formidable maturity with vested interests, political influence, and a strong instinct of self-preservation will see that the germs here peeping forth are quite capable, under favorable circumstances, of developing into such an organization. He will see further that favorable circumstances are not wanting, that the prevalence of unemployed professional men with whom these proposals for sanitary inspectors and public surgeons mostly originate, is likely to continue, that continuing it will tend to multiply the offices that it has created much in the same way the, uh, that the superabundance of clergy multiplies churches. That was written 170 years ago. Pretty insightful stuff. Again, I'll have a link to this in the show notes. I would encourage you to check it out. I want to segue from this into an article from John Miltimore about what happens when the experts fail, because this is something I think we're all getting a little bit of an education in. And he specifically talks about David Mamet. I hope I'm saying his name right. Maybe it's David Mamet. uh, The Pulitzer Prize winning Wall Street Journal, uh, uh, writing in the Wall Street Journal, this Pulitzer Prize winning playwright, David Mamet, did not hold back in his appraisal of the collective response to COVID-19. In fact, he summed it up as the virus here is government. John Miltimore writes, David Mamet made a name for himself as an award winning playwright, and one of the most successful screenwriters in the world. Some of his Hollywood writing credits include The Untouchables, Hoffa, Wag the Dog, uh, Ronan, and his critically acclaimed play, Glengarry Glen Ross. Recently, however, the Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright set his pen to a different task, writing an op-ed for the Wall Street Journal. Mamet delivered a scathing critique of how policymakers have handled the coronavirus pandemic, and he starts with a simple question. What happens when the most respected authorities get it wrong and ruin lives and economies? The answer is not much. Mamet traces the history of several powerful people, from Frederick Lindemann, a key advisor to Winston Churchill, to Trofim Lysenko, Joseph Stalin's science advisor, whose decisions led to catastrophe Lysenko for example believed plants could be re-educated just like people He believed that peas and wheat could be grown in the harsh Eurasian winters And his ideas tragically were eventually adopted by the Soviet Union Mamet writes the Soviet Ministry of Agriculture acting on Lysenko's bogus theories Managed to ruin crops all over Eurasia and starve as many as 10 million people Later his ideas influenced agriculture policy in Mao's China and killed several million more Now, despite the atrocity, Lysenko was not banished, imprisoned or executed, as one might expect in the USSR in the 20s and 30s. Instead, he thrived. By 1940, he was the director of the Institute of Genetics at the USSR's Academy of Sciences, where he'd use his political power to suppress dissent and imprison his critics. By 1948... Lysenko was the total autocrat of Soviet biology, and his ideas had become scientific dogma even as they got crazier. Lysenko claimed that wheat plants raised in the appropriate environment produce seeds of rye, which is equivalent to saying that dogs living in the wild give birth to foxes, notes Britannica online. His fundamental continuing argument was that theoretical biology must be fused with Soviet agricultural practice. Now, despite the lunacy of his ideas, which resulted in millions of deaths, Lysenko outlived Stalin and held power even throughout the reign of Nikita Khrushchev. Even long after his ideas were discredited, Lysenko retained his degree and academic titles. He died peacefully in 1976 and was buried in Kuntsevo Cemetery. That is the lesson of governmental power, Mamet says. We are all, in a sense, fools since no one person can know everything. We all have to trust others for their expertise, and we all make mistakes. Mamet says the horror of a command economy is not that officials will make mistakes, but those mistakes will never be acknowledged or corrected. Now, we're going to come back to this in just a few moments, but I'm asking you, wherever you stand on, you know, the public health response to COVID, can we at least begin with the understanding that, yes, mistakes have been made, even if they were trying their best, But the big question is, are those mistakes ever acknowledged? Are they corrected or do do they double down? I know what my answer would be. This
0: is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The
1: Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. Thanks again for joining me here on the show. Please tell a friend. Let others know if you find something of value in this message. And I, I, look, I admit there are days where I swing for the fence and I whiff it. All right. There are times where it turns out, oh, well, I guess I was just going to sit down and complain today. I try to make those days the exception rather than the rule. But uh, for the most part, I, I need you to understand, I spend the vast majority of my time looking for good, solid content that helps us all, myself included, better understand the world around us and better understand where we can exert our influence to take things in a more positive direction. You should always come away at the end of this program with a stronger sense of what you stand for and who you are. As opposed to, well, here's who I've got my marching orders. Here's who I should be angry at. And this is the group that I should be most frustrated with. And, you know, I, I just I don't want to play that game. I've, I've been through my red meat throwing phase. It uh, and, and it, it's sad because it was a very successful phase. I, I built amazing talk radio audiences, by throwing red meat, by giving people demons to wrestle with. And they loved me. Go figure. So I've taken a different approach, and it's definitely a quality over quantity approach when it comes to the audience. I want to do justice to your time, and I want to serve you the best I can by providing um, good Nourishing food for thought you don't have to agree with it and I'm certainly not suggesting that everything I share with you is is absolutely perfect and correct. But I think you'll find a different from a lot of the a difference from a lot of the sensationalized content that seems to, to typify still a lot of the talk radio realm and even the podcasting realm. So if it's something that works for you, if it's something that makes sense for you, I would ask you, please share it with a friend Secondly, if you have the opportunity to uh, to visit my sponsors, you'll find them listed on the show notes page as well. Um, please do business with them. And third, this is one final thing you can do, is if you subscribe to the podcast, consider becoming a patron. Consider becoming a regular monthly donor. For as little as a buck a month or five bucks a month, you can make a huge difference and allow me to concentrate my time on providing the best content that I can. All right. End of sales pitch. I hope you look for the article from John uh, Miltimore that uh, talks about uh, playwright David Mamet and, and what happens when the experts fail. It's been very clear that the lockdowns have been the biggest fail on the part of the expert class, probably since the Iraq war. John Miltimore says in an attempt to protect people from a virus they knew little about. Experts took the extreme and authoritarian step of locking down much of the economy, ordering people to be confined in their homes and forcing non-essential businesses to close their doors. And he says it was the most expensive infringement of individual freedom in modern history, and the results were catastrophic. That's not something we should just shrug our shoulders. Oh, well, you know, (laughs) mistakes are going to be made. The bottom line here, says John Miltimore, is, look, the central planner always seems to become consumed with his or her own plan above all else. And that's what we're seeing happen is central planning. They just want to they want the, those who are doing the planning. They'll sit there and they'll emote for us. Well, you know, it breaks our hearts to see these families that are suffering economic uh, hardship or, you know, homelessness or unemployment. Oh, it just breaks our hearts. And I don't mean to be crass, but that sounds that's pretty cheap coming from someone who is still collecting a paycheck courtesy of the taxpayers. In other words, money that is extracted by force from the people that they're putting out of work, whose businesses they're ordering closed. Yeah, I know it's you know, it sounds like it sounds like crocodile tears. Well, we feel your pain. We're all in this together. No, we're clearly not. Or you might be a little bit more concerned about the actual impact that some of your friggin' policies are having. Okay, I just had to get that off my chest. When experts and politicians insist that whatever nonsense they pronounce is actually helping you, you and I have a right and, in fact, maybe a duty to question whether it is. And if they say, well, that's just rude or "That's, that's ungrateful, so be it. They work for us. And that is a dynamic of the relationship that we cannot forget or allow to be inverted. All right. On a more positive note. I love the work that Libertas Institute is doing in my home state of Utah. And uh, analyst Molly Davis had a great op-ed published recently in the Salt Lake Tribune. The headline, "A a routine traffic stop should be nothing more. She says, when you really think about it, racial bias in policing is a bold statement to make, especially when talking about individual officers. Chances are you have a friend or a relative or at least know of someone who's in law enforcement. And when these claims of racism were boldly made this summer, you may have questioned them for this reason. She says, who are these angry protesters to call my friend slash relative slash acquaintance a racist? Or maybe you acknowledge racism may exist, but only as a product of the policing system as an institution, not within individual officers. Well, she says, whatever you think about racism in policing, the fact is racial disparity does exist in Utah's criminal justice system. Consider racial disparity in the state's incarcerated population, for example. In 2017, only 20 percent of Utah's population were minorities. Yet racial and ethnic minorities make up 43 percent of the prison population, at least as of 2017, which is an astoundingly disproportionate representation of minorities in the justice system. Now, Molly Davis points out the reason for this isn't entirely clear and pointing fingers at different government agencies and their employees won't necessarily help solve this. But she does say strategic policy change can move the state In the right direction. And one such policy idea is to reform how police interact with individuals at the very beginning of most people's interaction with the justice system. That's during a roadside vehicle stop. She says oftentimes getting a traffic ticket and paying it online will be a person's only encounter with the justice system. But for some, that seemingly simple traffic stop can be extended into a much more lengthy and burdensome process. And it takes only one discretionary question from a police officer to get there. Mind if I look around inside your vehicle? Now the traffic stop has evolved into a police-driven investigation of sorts, even if no other crime is being committed. Was it based on a hunch? Is the officer targeting the person because of the beat-up old car or the way the person looks? Is the driver wearing tie-dye with a man bun and has a lighter in the cup holder? There are a million possibilities. If the driver objects to a search, the person could be directed to stay put until a canine unit arrives on scene, which could take over an hour, or the officer could continue to push and question the driver. If the vehicle owner consents to a search, the person could be stuck waiting for the car to be turned inside out. Now, people, of course, have the right to refuse a search if they're simply being asked without the backing of a warrant. But research shows most people don't because the casual language officers often use when asking to search and because of the sheer intimidation of objecting to a government authority with a badge and a gun. Molly Davis says individuals have Fourth Amendment constitutional protections against unlawful searches and seizures. But they're not asserting those rights, and the reason for this isn't changing. To help ensure privacy rights are upheld and officers aren't fishing around based on implicit bias officers should ask to search the vehicle only if they have reasonable and articulable suspicion that a crime beyond the reason for the stop is being committed. This would help protect the officer from targeting accusations by ensuring the public that officers search only if they truly believe other crimes are being committed. It would also provide clear guidelines for officers to follow if they're questioning when to ask to search a vehicle or not. And most importantly, it would protect individual drivers who are not carrying around criminal evidence in their car, but are suspected of doing so for the way they look or the car they drive. She concludes by saying this policy change isn't going to solve racial bias in the criminal justice system, but it's one small yet effective way to ensure it hardly happens to help ensure it hardly happens during traffic stops. Now, this is a conversation I've had to have with with my adult kids, all of those who drive anyway. And I've had to explain to them, if a police officer asks you, do you mind if I take a look around in your car? The answer is always no, I do not consent to a search of my vehicle. And you don't be rude about it. You don't have to be you know, indignant and you know, get, uh, get puffed up and try to you know, escalate the situation. You just have to make clear that you understand if that officer is asking your permission, he or she does not have probable cause to be searching. And you can politely refuse the search. But again, as Molly points out in her op ed, most people won't do it. Why? Well, those flashing lights, that badge, the gun, the the command presence kind of makes it hard to say no the only people who will exercise their rights are the ones who know them so maybe we all have a little homework to do by the way i recommend Amagansett press on youtube as a great teacher of how to do this respectfully yet firmly
0: this is the brian hyde show